Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us to dig into the text of the Bible as we continue to investigate what Jesus called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God, his favorite topic. The Kingdom of God is the axis around which all of Jesus' teachings revolve. It's his master thesis. It's the idea in which the genius of the Christian faith is concentrated. Jesus spoke constantly about the gospel, and he called it the gospel about the kingdom of God. We've been emphasizing the fact that the gospel about the kingdom of God did not introduce a brand new idea to the audiences whom Jesus addressed. The kingdom of God was a well-established idea in Palestinian Judaism in the first century. All those who knew anything about the Bible at all knew that the prophets of Israel Indeed, the whole of the Bible had spoken of a time coming when God would intervene to shatter the affairs of our present human world governments and to replace them with a divine government, what was known as the kingdom of God. We found two critically important texts in Daniel 2, verse 44, and Daniel 7, verse 27. Those two passages beautifully illustrate the very heart and essence of of the Jewish national hope described in the time of Jesus as the kingdom of God or the life of the coming age. Those two phrases are interchangeable in the New Testament. Unfortunately, the expression eternal life is not exactly translated. It's a Jewish expression and means the life of the future age of the coming kingdom of God on the earth. That's the goal that Jesus set before his disciples and that's the goal which was rooted in the Hebrew Bible. Daniel 2 speaks of an intervention by God. The present nation-states are going to be replaced in a shattering cataclysm by a kingdom which has no end, a kingdom which is going to endure forever. Daniel 7:27 adds the all-important information that the agent in the establishment of that kingdom will be the saints of the Most High. And the saints are embodied, of course, in Jesus who in the New Testament is called the chief saint, the Holy One of God, the saint of God. And along with him we have those Christians who are also called saints. Saints, by the way, is a term to describe every true Christian, not just a class of super-Christians, as in some theological systems. So when Jesus invited his audiences to repent, that's to say to reorientate their lives to a new horizon, a new set of goals, he invited them to repent and believe in the good news of the announcement of the kingdom of God, the good news about the kingdom of God. You'll find that summary programmatic statement of the whole of the mission and ministry of Christ given in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. That precious phrase there, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom, sums up the whole point and purpose of Jesus and therefore the whole point and purpose of of the Christian faith. It might be of interest to you to ask yourself the question, have you been faithfully relaying the gospel message about the kingdom of God? Could you describe that kingdom of God? Could you turn to those relevant passages in the Hebrew Bible to describe what's meant by the kingdom of God? Could you convey the gospel clearly and intelligibly in the same terms as Jesus did, namely the gospel about the kingdom of God? I've written a book on this subject of the kingdom of God. It's entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. 
I'd be happy to send you a free copy of this book. All you have to do is phone us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. The substance of what we've been outlining in these programs is given more detail in this book. Many scriptures are mentioned, and we invite you to check them carefully in your own Bible and to ponder and to wonder about these great issues of the kingdom of God. We have the strong impression that the gospel as it fell from the lips of Jesus hardly gets any mention in contemporary preaching. All we hear about is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, those facts, of course, are absolutely essential to the gospel, but they do not form the totality of the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, you see, was preached long before Jesus said anything about his death and resurrection. In fact, remarkably, he sent out his own disciples, his own apostles, to preach the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, in the absence of any understanding on their part of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, to anyone who's thinking logically and clearly about the gospel, it must be clear that the gospel content is not fulfilled entirely by the death and resurrection of Jesus. How then could Jesus have been talking about the gospel without mentioning his death and resurrection? If you look in the 18th chapter of Luke, you'll find that Jesus made a third announcement of his impending death and resurrection. But the text in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, says that the disciples did not at that point grasp the fact that Jesus was going to die and be raised from the dead. And yet the whole of Luke's gospel in the earlier chapters and Mark's account and Matthew's account unanimously tell us that Jesus and the apostles had been preaching the gospel even before a word was said about his subsequent death and resurrection. My impression is that many Christians, in attempting to read the Bible, get in at the middle of the story without knowing the beginning of the story. You see, the arrival of Jesus on the scene as the preacher of the gospel of the kingdom has a vastly important history lying behind it. Jesus came as the fulfillment of an earlier given promise. Jesus, as the Messiah, was promised to the nation of Israel as far back as Genesis and in a massively important way in the life of Abraham. That's why Paul then can say that the gospel, the Christian gospel, was preached ahead of time to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 8. It's one of Paul's major themes to stress the continuity between the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New. Jesus, you see, did not just pop up on the scene, unannounced, so to speak. The whole history of Israel had anticipated the arrival of the Messiah. The bringing into being of the Messiah, what the New Testament calls the begetting of the Son of God, in Matthew 1.20 and Luke 1.35, that begetting, that bringing into being of the Messiah and Son of God was an event which had been prepared for even from before the foundation of the world. You'll read that in 1 Peter 1, verse 20. The Messiah was foreordained, says Peter, and manifested in these last days for us. So not only was Jesus as the Messiah foreordained, foreseen by the prophets of Israel, but his message, his gospel message, was also anticipated by the faithful of the Old Testament. The gospel, as Paul said it in Galatians 3 verse 8, had been preached beforehand to Abraham. It would seem to be essential then, if Christians are to get a grasp of what is meant by the gospel, the saving message, the message which actually sparks the life 
of immortality in us, it would seem only reasonable that we would want to search out what Paul meant by the gospel having been preached to Abraham. Surely we'd want to know what was preached to Abraham. What were the conditions laid down for Abraham's salvation? What was his inheritance? What did Abraham expect to achieve by believing the gospel? All of these are critically important questions for Christians, because the Christian gospel, says Paul, again I stress Galatians 3 verse 8, was preached ahead of time to Abraham. Now this matter of the gospel being announced in the Old Testament is a favorite theme of Paul. In Romans 1 verse 2, Paul said that the gospel of God, that's to say the saving gospel message, had been promised beforehand through the writings of the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Romans 1 verse 2. You see what that means. The gospel, the Christian gospel message is found in the holy prophets of the Hebrew Bible. It had been promised. It's the subject of promise. And that promise is found in the Hebrew Bible. This gives us a major clue as to the content of the Christian gospel. In a later chapter of the book of Romans, in Romans 3 verse 21, Paul spoke of the righteousness of God, that's to say, God's great program for the restoring of good order on this earth and the conferring of immortality on human beings, the righteousness of God, God's plan, his gospel, had been, and I quote, witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so, in order to understand the Christian gospel, we would naturally want to search out the meaning of it by referring to the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, as Paul directed us here. In another place, Paul made exactly the same point. In Romans 15, verse 8, he noticed that Christ had become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God, or the gospel of God, those are interchangeable phrases, to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Do you realize that Jesus then came to confirm an already existing gospel? And that gospel was the promise given to the forefathers, to the fathers of Israel, to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, in view of Paul's emphasis on the fact that the gospel is rooted in the Hebrew Bible, it will not come as a surprise if we notice that Paul, when he preached the gospel, appealed to the Old Testament. I'm thinking now of Acts 28, verse 23. Here we find a fascinating scene in which Paul had convened a number of Jewish people by inviting them to his lodging. And the text of Acts 28, verse 23 says that he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some of them were being persuaded by the things spoken by Paul, but others would not believe. Do you see there a wonderful description of what gospel preaching is supposed to be? It involved a very extensive discussion and examination of the Hebrew Bible. It involved also an exercise in persuasion. And some were persuaded by what Paul said and some were not. Some believed and some didn't. This was the way in which the New Testament put the gospel to people. It required some very serious Bible study before people were ready to be joined to the faith and become baptized as Christians. 
Now today, in many tracts, we see nothing at all of the Old Testament as the background of the Gospel. In most cases, we're offered a few verses from the book of Romans. For example, the fact that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, of course, that is absolutely true. We read also in tracts that God has raised Jesus from death and that Jesus died for our sins. But is that an adequate account of the gospel? In Romans 10, verse 9, Paul said that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we're going to be saved. And he spoke in that same context of the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, it's a disaster, as we all know, to take a single verse out of context and make it cover the whole ground of the gospel. It's essential in any passage of Scripture to examine the surrounding context and to make sure that we've got everything that's said about a particular subject in a section of Scripture. If we simply quote verse 9 of Romans 10, we get the impression that it's sufficient to say, Jesus is Lord, I believe God raised him from the dead, and that's what salvation is all about. But we mustn't omit the eighth verse, the verse just before, in which Paul speaks of the gospel as the word of faith which we, that's to say all of us apostles, which we are preaching. Now what exactly was that message that all of the apostles preached? Time does not allow us today a full investigation of the answer to that question. But we plan to investigate this subject more fully in our next program. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.